If you would turn in your Bibles to Job chapters 4 and 5, um, <clears throat> we're going to look this morning at Eliphaz's opening comments to what Job had to say last week. Remember where we are in the book of Job. Remember how critical Job 3 is going to be for our understanding of the whole rest of this, this story. Um, and so make sure that you go back and maybe review that from time to time uh, because Eliphaz is, is not speaking against what God has done. He is speaking into how Job has responded to what is happening. And so that is very important. Remember, Job spoke first. And it would have been common in their culture for them to wait for him to speak. And remember, his friends showed up because they love him. Remember that they too were grieving. They had torn their garments and thrown dust into the air and sat with him in silence at least seven days. Some suggest it may have been even longer. But they were with him and their intent was not to hurt him. And that's what we're going to see straight away from Eliphaz's opening comments. He was not seeking to be a wicked counselor. He was not seeking to necessarily just put Job in his place. He was actually seeking to relieve Job of his suffering. But remember, for those of you who've ever counseled anyone else in suffering, that it's also you who's being confronted. What you believe about God is being confronted by their suffering, isn't it? What you believe about God is being confronted by how they respond to their suffering. And so there's a certain measure when we open our mouths that we are revealing our own fears and insecurities. And that's what Eliphaz is going to do. He's going to open his mouth with the best of intentions. But it will not be a word that is fitly spoken in due season. He's going to lose track of the, the truth of who God is along the way. But I do want to remind you, and this isn't to blow the end of the story, remember God loves Eliphaz too. And God says to Eliphaz, I want you to be restored. Now go to Job and he will pray for you. And remember also that God makes it very clear that what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar say about him is wrong. And so as we go through this, let's be gentle and let's be kind to Eliphaz, but let's also make sure we're paying close attention to what it is he's saying and learn from it for ourselves because some of you may say, well, if me opening my mouth is a risk, then I just won't open my mouth at all. Now, is that biblical? Is it biblical for you to sit silently and idly by while someone you love suffers, offering them no word of comfort whatsoever out of fear that you may get it wrong? That is not biblical. It is biblical to listen longer before you begin to speak. It is biblical to try to be biblical in saying what you say. But it, it can be very, uh, very much a tangled mess, can it? It can be a very mysterious thing to step into. And so uh, I want to first say that we want to be gentle to these guys as we hear what they have to say. And remember that Job fired the opening salvo when he said, Cursed be the day that I was born. Cursed be the fact that I didn't die immediately upon my birth. What is he questioning there? He's questioning God's plan. Now, many of you I know were kind of caught a little bit off guard when I said, even in all that, Job had not sinned. Now, how can I say that? Because God said it. God said in the end that Job ended up speaking rightly about him. Now, you may say, well, what did Job repent of? Well, we'll get to that. We can't preach that sermon just yet. And so it's very important that we recognize that God is not displeased with us wrestling with and even questioning what's going on when there's an incongruity with what we know of God to be sovereign and good and holy and powerful and loving. 
And yet we suffer sometimes with no cause or reason and we don't understand. It is okay to question that incongruity. In fact, God recognizes that you are paying attention. You're actually awake. For you not to question is for you to be, to be dismissive almost. As if it doesn't matter. Remember what we learned from Habakkuk, that he very much appreciated that Habakkuk looked at the world and said, something is not right, Lord. You have to do something. And what we're going to see further on is Job continues to turn to God and say, it is you who must do something since it is by your hand that I am suffering. See, that is to speak rightly of God. Now, Eliphaz, we surmise, is probably the eldest since he speaks first, and because God goes to him as a representative of all three friends. He's probably the eldest. He's probably considered the wisest. Um, we don't know a whole lot about him other than he is an Edomite, and I don't necessarily think that plays into why God treats him the way he does in this case. Um, but he comes from Timon, which is a place of wisdom. Another one of the prophets speaks, has, is there no longer wisdom in Timon? But he comes from the south, and so that's really all that we know about him. We don't get much more than that. So as we step into this, I want to open with a question. Has someone else's prolonged suffering ever so compelled you that you had to speak? Have you ever walked with someone who was in such a profound state of suffering that you just no longer could remain silent? Or on the contrary, have you made the mistake of walking with someone who was in tremendous suffering and you didn't say a word? I've shared this with you before that there was a very early in my Christianity when um, I'd just become a Christian and my wife and I had gotten married and uh, we started going to this church, Harvest Baptist Church. Um, I was new there. The whole Christianity thing kind of freaked me out because I was a raging pagan prior to, and I just didn't know how Christians did what they do. I didn't know how to navigate all of the handshakes and language and all that kind of stuff, so I kind of stayed to the background. And so at this new church, straight away the Lord identified this woman uh, named Jan who had crutches that were ill-fitted, which I was a physical therapist by trade, had the perfect opportunity to go to Jan and fix her crutches and really speak into what I recognized to be the even deeper problem. She reminded me of my mother, who was a lifelong addict who overdosed and died. And I knew that Jan was an addict. It's just something we know about each other. And so the Lord moved in my heart to go and speak a word of encouragement to her, and I didn't do it. I said, I can't. I'm new. I don't want to do this. The next Sunday in, in the service, Jim Meldrum, the pastor, stood up and he said, it breaks my heart to tell you this, but Jan has overdosed. She's gone. And immediately my heart blew into a thousand pieces as Satan whispered, "Lo, you killed her. No, I didn't, by the way. However, I opened up the door in my disobedience to have to suffer that fault. And I do believe that it is a thorn that is driven deep in my own flesh. And so, while I'm not responsible for her death, I'm, not, I'm also not responsible for having encouraged her either. And so, I have tasted of being silent when I should have spoke. Which is why some of you may wonder why I'm so direct sometimes. Well, there it is. There it is. Um, and so, it's, I want you to recognize it is as much sin to not speak when you should. Now, Proverbs 25, 11 through 14 is a helpful corrective to us. Listen at what it says. It says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. 
Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reproof to a listening ear. Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger. To those who send him, he refreshes the soul of his masters. Let me pause just a second. That all says you actually speaking when you're called to speak and you have a word of wisdom is a very, very good and healthy thing. Amen. But listen at this last part. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. So be careful. The, the corrective is you, you, you should speak when you're called to, to speak, but don't write checks that cannot be cashed. Don't speak of God something that is untrue that cannot be done. I've done that too. A friend of mine who was at this same church who I recognized straight away who was an addict, um, he and I walked together for a long, long time. And there was one time I was in South Carolina, I got a phone call from him, and he revealed to me this, one of the most horrible things I think anybody's ever said to me that they had done. And uh, I, I told him, and I spoke completely out of turn, I said, Patrick, uh, I, I believe if you keep this up, God's going to kill you. And I was trying to shake him loose from what he was doing, and I had the best of intentions, but I spoke ill and wrong of God, because guess what God has not yet done? He has not yet killed Patrick, and Patrick is still not healthy. So I did not speak a word that was fitly spoken that helped him move from disobedience to worship and obedience. I spoke completely out of turn because of my anger. I was the one who wanted to hold the guillotine, if I'm honest. I wanted to kill Patrick for what he was doing to his family. I wanted to kill him because of what he was doing to me and my family and all the people that loved him. I spoke as if I had some sort of insight on God that I did not have. And it grieves me to have said that because guess what our relationship is now? It doesn't exist. Because I spoke out of turn and wrongly. I was like clouds and wind without rain who boasted of a gift that was not given. And so as we hear from Eliphaz, he too is going to boast of a gift that doesn't come. He is not going to speak words that are like apples of gold and settings of silver. He's just not, although he means to. The best of his human wisdom he's going to offer. So let's now turn to the text. We'll take the first six verses and then two other larger chunks. If you would, hear God's word this morning. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Eliphaz is approaching Job very genuinely. He's saying, can one speak to you and it not harm you further? I don't want, and Eliphaz is genuinely saying, I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to send you further into despair, Job. But, but this, is, this is the gravity of this. From what you have said, what it reveals about your heart, what is being revealed here, someone must speak. And he being the eldest and considerably the wisest must speak first. And so the first thing that he points out is that, hey, Job, you, you have been one who has helped others. You have proffered advice in similar circumstances where others were hurting, where others were in similar circumstances to you high upon the trash heap. And it has been good. Your advice has been taken. 
But there's a problem, Job. Now that this has befallen you, you have quickly jettisoned what you have given them and you are questioning the plans and the governance of our God. He's pointing out that there's an incongruity. And let's be honest. That incongruity rests in all of us. It is always much easier to offer to someone else these pearls of wisdom and these nuggets and advice about obedience. Parents, isn't this what we do? Isn't this the cottage industry that is parenthood? Hey, don't do what I did. Just do what I'm trying to tell you. I don't want you to make the same mistakes I made that shaped me into the person I am. I want you to be formed into the image I'd like for you to be instead of what God's doing. See, we offer things so often what we ourselves wrestle with and it's very difficult for us to then live out. It's not impossible because of the Holy Spirit, but it is a struggle, isn't it? It's easy, it'd be easy for us. What if we had the opportunity to get on Skype Christians in Syria? What would we offer them? Hey, from our air-conditioned, beautiful place here, we just want to encourage you, stay tuned. A friend of mine was a photographer for International Justice Mission, and he went to Palestine and did this photography thing on Christians in Palestine, the truly lost people who are caught in the middle, hated by everyone. They have truly no, um, no, no comforting affiliation whatsoever. And one of them said to him, they said, first off, they said, do the Christians in America even know we exist? And then he made this comment. He said, because... Uh, we need them to pray for us. And we've been praying for them because they're chocolate Christians. He said, chocolate Christians, yes. Whenever it gets hot, they melt. Now that's an indictment that we should receive. So recognize it is so much easier for us to recommend to others what they should do. It's different when it is your blood in the ditch, isn't it? So let's first and foremost recognize and be careful of that reality. And so Eliphaz is taking him to task for not being able to live out what he had offered to others. Is that a fair thing for him to do? Yes, I think it is. Because Job didn't wait long before his complaint began, before he began to say, and I don't know how long it is when you have boils on your body and your whole body seems like it's on fire and you've lost your family. Even saying that, I feel wrong in saying it. I don't know how he made it seven days, to be honest with you. I'm fifth, like I said last week, my wife was gone for 15 minutes and I was in the middle of the floor crying, begging for death because I didn't know she was coming back. No, she was coming. That's not entirely true. It's close. So here Eliphaz is actually questioning him on something and then he offers him this reproof. He says, is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? So he's saying, look, Job, if you're not guilty, you've got nothing to fear. This will pass. And if you are guilty, Job, then you can repent, which he's going to speak to later, and be restored. So he's saying to him something that is very true. Should not the fear of the Lord and our integrity be a comfort to us all? So, so far, Eliphaz is doing okay with what he's saying. But as Tremper Longman who is an Old Testament scholar, points out in his commentary in the Baker series on Job, he says, Eliphaz's challenge of Job's complaint, he does it reluctantly. He does not want to discourage Job, but he feels compelled to do so. Job's words threaten Eliphaz's fundamental understanding of who God is and how he acts in the world. Thus, he cannot keep himself from speaking. 
So Eliphaz is speaking because what Job's going through, he can't yet kind of put it all together and understand it and figure it out. For many of us, that's the motivation for why we speak into other people's suffering. We're just trying to, we just want it tidied up so it doesn't confuse us any longer. Is that the right motivation to speak into someone's life who's suffering? It's not. That's very selfish on our part. And we've got to be very careful that our goal is not to reconcile what God has not yet reconciled. It is his to reconcile. And so we too must be patient. We too must be careful not to speak before it's time to speak. Speaking in our own strength and in our own weakness and in our own uh, selfishness. I'm aware of this all too often. And so, as we said earlier, it's always easier to give other people advice. And really, you should be careful to speak, if, especially if you have no experience in it. I had an opportunity with a young lady who was a patient some years ago who I knew she had been molested by every man that was in her life. Father, stepfather, grandfather, uncle, and a cousin. She had five or six people before she was age six who had violated her. One day she came in. She'd been in a bad car accident. And she came in and she said, I am mad at God. Duh, I I would be too. And I immediately began to pray and I said, Lord, I am not about to step into this if you aren't leading the way. I have no words to offer her. I have no experience to offer her. What in the world could I ever say to her to comfort her? If you lead not the way, I will will remain silent. And the Lord uh, very graciously gave me some scriptures that came immediately to mind and I thought, okay, here goes. And so I told her, I said, Dana, I don't know why in the world the Lord did not slay those men on the spot, blow their hearts up in their chest, render them impotent, strike them dead, send a legion of angels and slaughter them. I don't know why he didn't do it. But here's what I do know. You have not become who you are now in the strength that you are now without some help along the way. And if I were to walk into a room full of people who've gone through what you've gone through, my voice will ring hollow. But yours, yours would be meaningful. And if you're willing to take and offer up your broken cup, then you will be a blessing to many. She didn't say a word and she left. I thought, well, that probably didn't go so well. I'm probably getting fired. So she came back and she said, I'm not mad at God anymore. And she said, you're going to be a weird pastor. Fair enough. Fair enough. But it was a risk, wasn't it, to step into that But for me not to speak and leave her in her anger would have been just as ungracious because I feared what would come back or blow back on me. So this is the tension, isn't it? When to be silent and when to speak. And I know many of you are not comfortable sometimes when you you hear somebody like myself say, the Lord led me, or you're thinking, what was that? Was it like a thump? Did he thump your ear? Did he something rub your belly? Like what's going on there that you felt led? And I don't know how to answer your question, Toto. Other than my time in the word generally is the means by which, my time in devotion is the means by which God speaks. So I say that to say to you, if you don't have a rich devotional life, it is unlikely that the Lord will call you to speak because you will have nothing to offer. Because the wisdom that you will offer out of an anemic devotional and prayer life ain't worth it. It's just not worth it. This becomes the importance. If you want to be a good neighbor, if you want to love people well, we must be a people who are growing and maturing through our devotional time, through our time before the Lord. Again, I've said it a time and time again, you have no idea how your lack of devotion over the last month is affecting you a year from now. 
It's affecting you two years from now when you're going to need it the most because you've taken it for granted. To try to, in the midst of an emergency, pull it all together is very difficult. The Lord is gracious, but it's difficult, far more than it ought to be. So, here we have Eliphaz saying some things that are good and true, and he opens well, and he's being gentle, and he's trying to love Job. But then things begin to change. Let's go back to the text, verses 7 through 21. He says, remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God, they perish. And by the blast of his anger, they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth, the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Now, a word was brought to me stealthily, and my ear received the whisper of it amid thoughts from visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men. Dread came upon me in trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face, and the hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence, and then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants, he puts no trust. And his angels, he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening, they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die, and that without wisdom? Let me ask you, what if you were in the midst of suffering and I came and I read that to you? I hope what you notice straight away is that Eliphaz is speaking of a God who is incredibly distant. A God who is so far over and above that he does not regard man at all. See, he charges even his angels with error. He doesn't even listen to them, according to Eliphaz. What's interesting about Eliphaz's statement is that the reasoning that he, he concludes, this transcendence of God, it's based on some things that he has seen with his eyes. So he's a man of experience. He quotes proverbial wisdom straight away. He says, remember, who was innocent that ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? What's he getting at here? He's saying retribution theology. God, uh, the relationship with God is mechanistic. If you sin, you die. You mess up, you get crushed. You're good, you get blessed. Cosmic candy machine God. He's basing it on proverb, proverbial wisdom that's true as long as it's not applied all the way across. That's the difficulty here. Eliphaz is saying some true things, but he's also saying some things that aren't true. He even takes and looks at creation, at the lion who is fierce, much like a sinner who is seeking to devour and destroy, and he says, even he is cut off. That's really important that we recognize how creation is used all throughout Job so that when God speaks, we recognize he's correcting all kinds of problems. And so here, Eliphaz is saying that if you mess up, you die, retribution theology. And then he says, and God doesn't even regard us anyway. Now, is that true? 
is what he said true that God doesn't even listen to his messengers? Is that biblical? The answer is no. What did he do when Abraham said, Lord, if there be 50 righteous men in Sodom, would you preserve her? God said, I will. And how many did he find? And it was 40, 30, 20. How about just 10? And the Lord said, if I could find 10, I'd preserve Sodom. But here's the problem I won't. When Moses was offered what any leader would sometimes love to be offered, I will get rid of the stiff neck among you and give you a brand new nice group of people. What did Moses do? He said, no, Lord, don't do that. That would go against who you are. Even in Job, when the sons of God come before him to give a report, what's God doing? He's listening. Even when Satan said, let me have Job, God listened. So what Eliphaz is saying of God ultimately isn't true. And it's certainly not true in Christ. If God was not concerned with his creation, why would he do everything he could so that he could be with us for an eternity? Why, even in the Old Testament, would it say that I long to be in your midst? I long to have those who are scattered and far off brought near so that I can sing praise songs over you. Eliphaz, the God that Eliphaz is describing is not the God of the Bible. He's describing a distant and transcendent and uncaring and harsh God. Now, is there any theology that you know of that at times can take God and make him transcendent and harsh? It is ours. There are times when Reformed theology, misused by the way, takes God and drives him to the back of the universe and turns his face away from us even now, if we're not careful. Be very, very careful that your theology doesn't lead you into unbiblical waters and makes you think like Eliphaz, that he doesn't care for his creation. He doesn't care for the man who he crowned with joy and glory and made him just a little lower than the angels in whom he takes pleasure as well. Don't you dare let your theology rob you and paint you into some corner that makes you think that God would not get up from his throne and come and redeem you, getting the one, leaving the 99, and all of heaven breaks out in a party. Don't you dare ever let anyone make you think that God doesn't love you. And in this, Eliphaz is giving kind of the summary of what is the problem with his and Bildad's and Zophar's thinking. God is just a mechanism. Now that creates some problems now, doesn't it? Because if God doesn't, doesn't operate according to some mathematical equation that we can figure out, well, then we got to live in some mystery. And that creates problems when things happen and we don't rightly know, why is this happening? Why is this happening to me who is, I didn't do anything wrong. Why is this happening to my child? Why is this happening to them? Why now? Some friends of ours at a local church, The Journey in Hiram, just have gone through just wave after wave after wave of sorrow such that it just begs the question, why? Why them? Why must they suffer so much, Lord, when they love you so much? I don't have any answers but I do know that it's not because God is at the back of the universe with his face turned away uncaring. 
And also know it's not because they are wicked, wicked people who don't do their liturgy right, who sing the wrong hymns on Sunday and maybe do intention. I know that's not why it's happening to them either. So I want you to recognize that what Eliphaz is actually saying is biblically incorrect and untrue. Listen to what Bruce Waltke, Old Testament scholar, says of this. He says, Job's friends first premise that we reap what we sow, it's valid. Their second premise, however, that we reap only what we sow is false. All suffering, as Job's experience validates, is not due to sin. They rightly assert that God is all-powerful, righteous, and wise, but they deny his freedom by not allowing God the freedom to use evil to accomplish his sovereign purposes. Think about in Genesis, what's one of, the, one of the most amazing passages that we read? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And again, as we said last week, it is exactly the sovereignty of God that creates the problem, doesn't it? But it is only in the sovereignty of God that we have any hope in the midst of the problem. If it's up for grabs, if it's some sort of crapshoot, if, 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 if evil is in any way, shape, or form on par with God in its powers, then you, I, all of us are cannon fodder. And there is no hope for any of us. None. So praise God that he's sovereign, and may we continue in the mystery. Eliphaz doesn't seem so willing at this point. And look at what he does also. He appeals to... Hey, I had a dream. I had a vision. And there's even some problems with his vision. See, the Bible shows us that when a prophet is granted something, it's not given to the prophet in the form of a riddle. It's not given to him in shadow and darkness. It is given to him such that he can see it clearly and be able to speak on behalf of the Lord to comfort the people. Eliphaz is saying it was but a whisper. So I only got part of it. I was half asleep. So all of his faculties weren't involved. He couldn't even see who this person was. And what they said was unbiblical. So it doesn't matter that he had some sort of experience. So be careful that you don't go to someone and say, hey, I've, I've had a word. No, maybe you had some bad Chinese food. Maybe the MSG's got you. Your word, whatever it may be, and there may be that you had an experience. I don't want to discount that. But do remember that there is a spiritual war going on in the in the liminal space between the now and the not yet that we don't see or totally understand. So yes, sometimes you can be given a word, but your word should always line up with Scripture and be tested and checked before you go giving it to someone in the midst of suffering. You understand? That is critical. But he had an experience, and he uses his experience to validate what he's now saying to Job that is utterly and wholesale biblically wrong. Have you ever done something like that? Have you ever spoken a word out of season? You didn't check it against the word. You just felt something and you kind of stirred up and you went to someone and you said, hey, I, I, feel like you should, I feel like you should probably divorce this person. Hey, I feel like you, 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 you ought to be happy. God just wants you to be happy. I had, a, I had a dream and all he wants you to do is be happy. Be, be very, very careful of your experiences. They must always, always, always come under the rubric of Scripture, and they should be tested. Something that we don't, I don't think we do well, we should put it before other wise biblical counselors and say, hey, I'm thinking about saying to this to this person, man, what do you think? 
Is there any way I'm off here? Because I know, especially early in my Christianity, I would quote something with great vigor. For instance, this proverb, you should never, ever speak to a fool in his folly lest you become a fool. If I'd only read down one more line, it would say, sometimes you got to speak to a fool in his folly. That's why you don't stop halfway in the chapter. Keep going. We've all done it, right? Like you, 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 you read something in the Bible, man, you just quote it with great vigor and fervor as if it were true. And then later on, you read something, you just want to go back and apologize. You want to say, I, that was foolish wisdom. I'm so sorry I said that to you. So be careful that you, like Eliphaz, don't make that mistake. Now let's turn to uh, chapter 5, and I'll read the entire chapter, and we'll walk through some pieces of it. Obviously, in covering this much material, we can't go through every jot and tittle. So if you do have some other questions, if something is not resolved and you want to know more about it, by all means, call the office, make an appointment, send me an email. Let's get it worked out. Um, uh, but we're just not able to answer everything. Um, so if we would turn back. Chapter 5 says this. As Eliphaz continues, I just want to point out he's going to do, um, he's going to quote some, some proverbs. He's going to quote a hymn. He's going to do a little sermonette. So he is hitting Job with everything that he has straight away. And we've done it too, haven't we? Call now, is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Surely vexation kills the fool, and jealousy slays the simple. I have seen the fool taken root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no one to deliver them. The hungry eats his harvest, and he takes it even out of thorns, and the thirsty pant after his wealth. For affliction does not come from the dust." Nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. As for me, I would seek God. And to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth. He sends waters in the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty. He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death. And in war, from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue and shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine, you shall laugh. And you shall not fear for the beasts of the earth. For you shall be in league with the stones of the field. And the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall not, you shall know that your tent is at peace, and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall know also that your offspring shall be many, and your descendants as the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in ripe old age, like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know, for it is good. 
So here, what Eliphaz is doing, he's saying there's no one for you to call on, Job. There's no one who's going to answer you, which is interesting, then why is Eliphaz talking? Do you, do you, do you get that? Why is Eliphaz talking if there's no one who can grant Job what he needs? So Eliphaz says, there's no one who is going to answer you. There is no one who can save you, Job. It is only by your repentance that you can be restored. Listen to what he says. This is true. We read this in scripture. The discipline of the Lord is a good thing because it is what the sons and daughters need from a loving father. Is that right? You bet it's right, but it's wrongly applied. This is the problem. Here, Eliphaz is kind of putting the screws to him and saying, let me tell you about something I have seen. Notice that's what Eliphaz does on occasion when he really wants to push something across. He says, I've seen this. Based on my experience, here's what happens. And he essentially calls Job a fool who has cost his family dearly and who cannot be restored. And what he says is this, then this is critical for us to understand because it's, if, if we don't get this, we're not going to understand what the friends are ultimately talking about. He says, Job, if you will just confess to your sin, whatever it is, you can get all your stuff back. You can get all your stuff back, Job. Now, what did Satan say? Does Job fear God for nothing? You take away his stuff, and he will curse you to your face. Eliphaz says exactly what Satan says. Job, if you want to get your stuff back, then all you got to do is admit something you didn't do. I don't care what it is. Just tell God you're sorry, confess your sin. Now do you see the conundrum? This is why Job is going to fight so hard against his friends and suggest that he has done nothing wrong. I can't, he's saying, I cannot repent of that which I have not done. That would be to lie. And Job will ultimately later confess in chapter 29 that it is not about the stuff that mattered to him ever anyway. What he misses the most is the presence of the Lord. That's good theology. We should care so much about the presence of the Lord that this stuff doesn't matter. That we would be more concerned about, am I, am I right with God, not so I can get stuff, but so that I can enjoy him as I was created to do. Glorify and enjoy him forever. But is that most of our concern? When's the last time you said, Lord, am I just... Just want to check in with you. How am I doing glorifying you and enjoying you? I know it's the first question of the Shorter Catechism. I, I've read it a million times. But where do we ever stop and ask, Lord, is this true of me? How am I doing because I love you and I want to experience you in full, not in part? Though I know between the now and the not yet, we look through a glass half darkly. For many of us, we're looking through a glass completely dark, it seems. And so Eliphaz is calling for Job to just wrap this up, man. Tell him you're sorry, confess what you've done, get over it, and move on. And Job's saying, I can't, I can't. I can't because I'm not guilty. And if he does, if he were to confess, then he would be doing exactly what Satan said. He's just trying to end his suffering by lying. And that would not be good. So for Eliphaz... He essentially is very orthodox. The problem is it's a dead orthodoxy. 
He is orthodox, but the problem is is that he sees God as distant but manageable. See, God operates according to these things that I have said, these things I have seen. So his orthodoxy is dead, and it's rigid, and it's misapplied. You ever had that happen to you? You ever had someone misapply their rigid theology to you? Have you ever misapplied your dead orthodoxy to someone else, the manageable God who lacks mystery and who you have figured out in toto? I hope not. And if you have, repent and move forward. And I know many of you may be struggling and thinking, I'm just not sure what Eliphaz is saying is wrong. Well, that's the problem. That's the problem. Because what Eliphaz is saying is wrong in praxis and in some part from the biblical perspective as we have seen. Listen to what Derek Kidner, Old Testament scholar, says. He says, the basic error of Job's friends is that they overestimate their grasp of truth. You ever done that? You ever overestimated your grasp of the truth? You ever said, I have seen how this works. And it says that they misapply the truth they know. And they close their minds to any facts that contradict what they assume. The book of Job shows by its context in the opening scene in heaven how small a part of any situation is the fragment of what we see. How much of what we, we do see we ignore or distort through preconceptions and how unwise it is to extrapolate from our elementary grasp of truth. What did Derek Kidner just take us to the woodshed on? He just said, look, you got to first confess you don't know it all. And there's no way for you to know it all. So therefore, when you step into someone else's suffering, you must do so with great humility and tenderness and gentleness. And be careful that you don't make God so manageable that he cannot save you when you need him. It's interesting how Eliphaz says, you know, it was great when you were able to render all mystery known as you were ministering to other people, but now that this trouble has befallen you, what are you going to do? Well, see, Eliphaz has seen it for other people, but yet it has not yet befallen him. It would have been interesting for God to reveal to us how Eliphaz responds later in life when this trouble comes upon him too. And so it's important that we recognize that oftentimes our motivation for trying to help someone else in their suffering is incredibly selfish. And we are too quick to speak, slow to listen, not, not near uh, quick enough to listen, long enough to listen. And we take and we misapply the truth and it ends up hurting not just them, but us as well, because then we have to live according to that rigid theology that we have constructed. So what do we learn from this? That the truth is oftentimes, for those in suffering, offered with the best of intentions. It is. And intentions don't necessarily make up for being wrong, now does it? What is the road to hell paved with? I don't know if that's biblical, but sounds good right now, doesn't it? That it is harmful when we misapply the truth as in a retribution theology. When we say, look. If you hadn't done X, then Y wouldn't be happening to you. Or you must have done X based on what I see of Y that's happening to you. You're suffering because you must have done something wrong. We as parents do this to ourselves. When our kids find themselves in difficult circumstances, we begin to immediately question and imagine, I must have done something wrong. If I had just parented my kid this way, I would have raised a beautiful saint. How true is that? It's no more mechanistic in parenting than it is 
with God who parents us. And then it is also harmful when we give false implications and we assume other people's guilt. When we press in on them and say, there must be something more going on given what you're going through. Because suffering is not purely based on guilt. Suffering sometimes is the crucible by which God sanctifies his children. Why? Because it's the best way. I know how hard-headed, no, wait, let me, I, I don't. I know one one billionth of how hard-headed I am, and that's very large. So ever how hard-headed I am is in, inconceivable, incomprehensible. And so I know that there are times when the Lord must take me to the crucible lest I wouldn't listen at all. Praise God that he does, even though I don't like it in the midst of it. 